Hello everyone, welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox and I am here with Liz Murphy. Hello Mim, how are you? I'm really well Liz, it's so good to be back on the podcast with you. Back and under the quilt. Yeah, love it. Um, Everyone, before we kick off today's episode, we'd just like to acknowledge the country that we're on today. So Mim, we are in my place and we're on Darawal country. Fantastic. So I want to acknowledge the country we're on. We also want to acknowledge any uh, Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging that are listening into the podcast today and uh, as well as all the lands and countries of Indigenous peoples that all of our listeners are zooming in on um, to listen through their podcast platforms today. Uh, And I always like to acknowledge as well, Liz, uh, the deep commitment our profession has to working in partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities. Um, And I have to say, if any of our listeners are listening and thinking, hang on, are we on the right podcast? What's going on? We want to tell everyone to go back and listen to episode 14. That's the decolonising social work episode that we had with Danika. That's right. That was the one where we had a cultural supervision session. We did. It was such a great episode and uh, I think we also did a rehash of it at another point. So just if you're sitting there thinking, what is this acknowledgement of country thing they're doing? What is going on? Go back to that episode and um, and have a listen because it was a favourite of ours. It sure was. It sure was. So on that note, we're going to start our episode off today and uh, I had this absolute privilege, Liz, where I got to speak with uh, an amazing social worker called Deanne Dale. Deanne is a, what she would now term as a private external supervisor, but back in the day she's come from health, she's been working in all these different organisational contexts, but supervising professional social workers once they're out there practising is one of the main things that she does. It was a really great conversation. I absolutely loved it. And, um, and I, I really, a lot of food for thought actually in it. So has. I, um, I've listened to it three times actually because as you say on the recording, this is an area that you and I both feel incredibly passionate about and it was so great to listen to a social worker so um, I guess firm in, her, in, the, in the way she articulates how she works with her, her social workers um, and so I would say to people Listen to how she articulates and and the models that she refers to, which I think are really, really interesting, don't you, Mim? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Listen out for those models, the approaches she's using. Uh, But also, I think, um, listen out for the way she articulates her supervision practice. Yes. And also the way she, uh, I guess, shines a spotlight on ethics and values uh, within those sessions um, and the way she centres social justice. Yeah, it's beautiful, actually. If you're thinking to yourself, uh, this is just for students, you're a practitioner who's been out for a long time, I'm going to say no. No way. There's, no. there's absolutely no way that this, what we're listening to in this episode is how supervision should be. And I think um, if anyone is sitting there thinking, I've been out for 30 plus years, don't need supervision, I'd say go into the Hall of Mirrors because this is a lifelong quest that supports us in our practice and our learning. It doesn't stop. Supervision never stops. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think 
Deanne talks about that as well. Yeah, she absolutely does, the lifelong learning component of supervision. So we're going to leave it there. Enjoy uh, the conversation that I was so blessed to be able to have with her and we will uh, talk with you again at the end. See you later. Welcome, Deanne Dale, to the Social Work Stories podcast. It is so great to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Mim. I'm very excited to be part of this project. I've been kind of following you and listening to episodes and thinking what a wonderful uh, initiative it is for social work. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) Um, This is really a special episode because we're getting to talk about a topic which is very dear to both Liz and my heart, but I know very dear to you as well. So we're going to talk about supervision. Yes, supervision has become my um, my bread and butter. <laughs> my every waking thought is it's pretty much about supervision these days. Your um, life, if it's not life about work. teaching, then it's about supervision. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think there's so many social workers out there who feel that way, actually, as they keep going in the career, is that actually supervision becomes one of those really dominant, must be, must most important topics for us. Yes. And I think um, there's uh, maybe people that are earlier in their career who've just, you know, fresh out of university and and get drummed into them. Always make sure you've got high quality reflective supervision. But ironically, uh, people lose sight of that. And uh, as they go get into more senior positions, sometimes, you know, buy into the discourse of actually now that you're a senior, you don't need supervision. Or now that you're a manager, you don't need supervision. And um, uh, unfortunately, I think that's um, to, to people's detriment when there's so much high quality supervision out there. I think that's really true. And also just the discourse that if you're doing clinical work, you're too busy for supervision, surely. Yeah, that's right. You know, which is a real shame. Okay, yeah. so before we really get into it, Deanne, maybe you can introduce yourself to our listeners, give us a bit of an idea of who you are and your background, that sort of thing. Yep. So um, I graduated from UNSW um, (laughs) in the mid 80s and sort of uh, launched my uh, career in um, the health sector, Um, initially hospital social work and then uh, went into the child protection uh, assessment and hospital space, child protection unit, and then and also then started uh, counselling. Uh, and pretty much my most of my career has been in in therapeutic spaces, uh, responding to forms of interpersonal violence. So um, sexual assault counselling services in New South Wales, um, uh, New South Wales Health, but also NGOs, um, child protection counselling services, um, and uh, I did do a, a brief stint with the statutory child protection agency in uh, New South Wales as a casework specialist, which was great to actually get an understanding um, all the questions I've had about working alongside the statutory child protection space. Uh, I was able to answer for myself (laughs) from my from lived experience of working there. So that was very useful to me, actually. Um, So, yeah, mostly working um, as a frontline clinician or as my career went on then as a and as soon as you stand still for more than um, five minutes and uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you get asked to uh, act up. And so I did quite early on in my career. And then I ended up, at, you know, being a management uh, 
at management level within um, health and other organisations. But um, I, I've never wanted, aspired to sort of get to the stage of, of management where I was felt really disconnected and far removed from the frontline work. Um, I've always kind of tried to keep a toe <laughs> firmly on the ground uh, of the lived experience of, of my team and, and uh, my colleagues uh, in the doing of the hard work. So, um, uh, more recent years, I decided that I would best serve um, my profession and my community by teaching and supervising students, uh, social work students, and um, have uh, also been developing a independent supervision practice, um, mostly social workers, but some other allied health professionals as well. Um, anyone who's really interested in holding social justice and the and ethic, uh, having an ethical stance around that at the centre of supervision. So um, that's been growing over the last few years as well. So teaching, supervising, that's kind of, as I said, my bread and butter at the moment. <laughs> So that's a really interesting approach, Deanne, to make social justice be at the centre of the supervision dialogue or dynamic. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit more about how that actually works? Yeah, well, look, I've been inspired a lot by, um, well, first of all, uh, narrative therapy. So I did um, training with Michael White and David Epstein in the 90s and then um, also then became fascinated with the work of Janella Bird, who's a colleague of David Epstein in New Zealand. Um, and that also satisfied my need for some um, feminist theory as well. <laughs> so it was those early days in the 90s of becoming totally immersed and enamoured of um, post-structuralism, critical theory. Um, and for me, uh, talking about ethics a lot in, about supervision and about our therapeutic work um, which doesn't happen in all forms of supervision. I think there's some kind of lip service paid to ethics sometimes, but, you know, nearly every consideration, every supervision question has an ethical component. So, um, and that came from narrative therapy. And then um, kind of probably about 10 years ago, I discovered Vicky Reynolds, a Canadian uh, community worker and uh, clinical supervisor who has written and researched on um, supervision that's uh, what she calls uh, solidarity supervision or a supervision of solidarity and uh, has ethics and ha taking an ethical stance as being um, whether you're working with a group or with an individual in supervision uh, that's what your uh, that's where your starting point is is being able to um, I guess be aware of your own personal val values and ethics. But then if you're working in a group of people, how do you bring that together to kind of create a collective ethic? Um, and then how does that collective ethic show up in your practice? Uh, and also in the way that you form relationships, so whether that's relationships within your team, with your colleagues, or and especially how you, um, how you practice with your clients. Or, the, or I suppose the preferred language would be the, you know, the people that you're serving. So um, uh, that Vicky Reynolds has been very influential in more recent years. And also response-based practitioners, also from Canada. Um, so uh, Alan Wade, Linda Coates, Kathy Richardson. So uh, some of their writings and teachings have been very influential for me because, again, there's a... Um, 
a real focus on ethics, uh, but also because I'm working with a lot of people in the uh, in services responding to forms of interpersonal violence. Um, you know, having an understanding of the power of language and how we use language, uh, that's very much a, a central concern of response-based practice. So um, so they're the ideas that have been shaping my work recently and I've found a lot of people that are also interested <laughs> in those ideas. So I've got a lot of people coming to me wanting, uh, wanting to engage me in a supervision relationship because they know that's where I'm coming from, basically. I love that what you've just described is actually a reflective cycle where the, as a supervisor you're engaging with your own ethics and values and you're taking a critical lens on what the supervisee is sharing with you in order to then work with them on their responses to others around them, whether it be their colleagues or whether it be the people they serve as you, as you described. Would that be right? Yeah, and I think too that... Um and I don't know, I don't know that Vicky would write about it this way, but the way I've been thinking about it more these days is that whether I'm I'm working in supervision with a group or with an individual, there's kind of like parallel storylines. And maybe that comes from my, more my narrative background is that I'm working with the stories of um, the worker and their values and ethics and, and their practices and, you know, um, in, a, in a reflective cycle way. But I'm also holding at the same time a parallel, the parallel storylines of the people who are being served or the clients. So as the worker, it's, they're kind of like intersecting parallel stories. So, mm. you know, supervision conversations are, are, are kind of related to both story, you know, both of those storylines, if you like. How do you hold multiple storylines like that, Deanne, in a supervision session? That feels really <laughs> challenging to me. Um, well, not, not if you've come from a narrative therapy background. Um, you know, uh, keep it, being able to track problem-saturated dominant storylines yeah. uh, when people first come to see you, and that's often where people are at um, when they first come and see you for supervision. There's often a, a overwhelming narrative about either I'm burnt out or I'm about to burn out or there's something that's about feeling uh, demoralised, um, feeling exhausted, frustrated, uh, powerless, um, and that's mostly not about work with clients. <laughs> it's nothing to do with clients. It's usually about the systems and political structures, economic structures, discourse that create that what Vicki Reynolds calls spiritual pain because, you know, none of us go into social work or anything that's to do with social just doing, justice doing without, um, you know, feeling pain when we can't take action according to our ethics. So, uh, that's often where people are at. So I have to listen very carefully to that dominant story and all the stories that are attached to that. <laughs> and there's many a legion over time. So sometimes you have to go back in history a fair bit. But as a narrative therapist, I'm also lis I'm doubly listening. Uh, so I'm listening out for exceptions. Uh, I'm listening out for responses so times when the worker, despite the spiritual pain, has taken actions, taken initiatives um, towards connecting with others, seeking solidarity, um, you know, their, their intentions and their ethics around keeping their client um, at the centre of their work, um, of, of, you know, making sure, you know, that those times when they're able to act according to their ethics in their work. So it's kind of that... Um, 
you know, thickening up of the, once we get a, 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 you know, we get a sense that there's this whole alternative preferred storyline, then we're, you know, we're trying to thicken that up in various ways. And sometimes that might be through, um, it happens quicker in group supervision, but that's kind of why I've become more interested in more recent years in connecting people up who I'm seeing individually. Um, because I think that th- that thickening up of the alternative stories happens so much uh, quick, more quickly <laughs> and richly if, if, we, if we come together. So, When you say thickening up, do you mean uh, that it's becoming more real or actionable for the person? What is, what well, is- first it has to become known again. It has to become um, uh, something that's of substance to the person and that is to the person. So it really needs to connect, you know, with the, very deeply with the values and ethics of what matters to the person, what they stand for, what they're committed to. Um, and then once you, you know, you ask those evaluation questions, um, then, you know, you start working on, on making those alternative stories more present to the person, uh, more able to be acted on, as you say, um, in the everyday of the, of the practice. So, um, yeah, that it's it's about sometimes that, again that when you've got witnesses to that story, when you've got others you can uh, who can who can um, uh, acknowledge, honour those stories of resistance of responses. Um, I think that's that's what um, creates change and uh, makes people get a sense of moving towards. Um, being the kind of practitioner that they preferred to be, which is miles away from that burnt out description <laughs> they've come they've come to you initially with, right? So yes, that's right. Mm. So it sounds like you're actually moving away from this individual work, not move, well, probably not completely moving away, but your interest is building in what happens in a group setting. Yeah, to try and connect people up, like. Um, to give people a sense of solidarity, of get you know, as I said, a witnesses to each other's work and and struggles and um, resistance and responses to huge systemic problems. I think that's what's really important, and and giving people a sense of community. Um, a lot of narrative practice um, is is interested in creating community around problem and community responses to problems because there's a lot more interest in connecting up the, you know, struggles that individuals are having with what's, you know, the public, what's going on in the public domain, what's going on in socio-political cultural discourse. Uh, you know, that's making those links is very important. So, in a, you know, that's what I think forming community uh, will offer rather than working individually. And it's also an antidote to all the neoliberal uh, discourse out there, you know, about individualised service delivery. Uh, yes. about, um, you know, things you can count, you know, all, all those things that go along with, uh, you know, neoliberalism, economic rationalism, etc. So, but, you know, people are always, they come to me asking for individual supervision because that's what their organisation expects. Uh, that's the framework, that's the dominant discourse around supervision is, is, you know, that you do it one-on-one in a room, face-to-face, that's the ideal. It's a bit like therapy, right? That's what's yeah. he- held up as the ideal. But actually what often is much more powerful and what's what works best is to bring people together. So you were talking before that Vicky Reynolds says calls that a solidarity groups. Yeah. Um, 
Is that what you're calling these groups that you're starting with? I seem to remember a different name for it. No, I think, well, there's a group of people that I've started to get together. This is kind of a bit of um, uh, brave new territory going into just connecting up people that I've been working with individually who I'm having I'm having deja vu in all the conversations like um the themes of the work um into you know whether it's themes that are to do with problem stories and senses of overwhelm and frustration you know the burden of waiting lists all of these kind of conversations are what we start with but also what is inspiring to people what people what moves people on in their work um you know I will, i'm also getting a sense of those stories as well so you know my hope is to be able to you know create a forum where we're sharing those stories of both of struggle and resistance and responses to to problems um so that's my my intention around that but uh, i've kind of when we first first started talking about having this conversation i was thinking Gosh, actually, my history of doing this goes way back uh, to the 90s of, um, you know, always trying to do my best to join people up in community. Um, and community is so much not only part of my work uh, my profession in my professional life, but also in other aspects of my life as well. Um, and, you know, just being part of a community is just so sustaining and enriching and um, enlivening. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I kind of like being part of that myself, but I also like being part of creating that for people. Um, you know, taking an idea of a possibility of a community and making it, making it happen. So I thought, oh, actually, yes, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a strong history of this in my working life. <laughs> and something I also know about you is that you run retreats for social workers. Yes. That, can, you do, can you talk a little bit about the philosophy behind that and what actually happens in that space? Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, a retreat that um, I helped organise uh, back in the 90s. No, no, it was the early 2000s, actually. Um, for we'd, we'd sort of done a lot of training in this. Well, it was a um, kind of a semi-regional community on the outskirts of Sydney, Um we had done quite a bit of training together, like instead of sending uh, team members to this particular place to do training, we actually got the trainers to come to us to build a training community and a uh, community in narrative ways of working. And out of those people in our networks, um, we spent the weekend together at a lovely retreat place. It was beautiful uh, actually in the middle of nature, it was just a gorgeous place to be having conversations around, um, you know, what, again, they were very ethical conversations. They were about narrative practice. They were about um, community building. Um, it was a really lovely weekend together. And then those those that community formed on that weekend went and did some other kind of projects. Like there was one particular counsellor who was working um, with someone who was quite it was quite a high profile media um, situation, and she invited some of the people that attended that to be outside witnesses for her in a session she had with a client. So, um, and we also used to meet up regularly. So there was a community of like minded people. So that was back in the nineties, um, and then uh, in more recent years, I was kind of thinking, well, what would be a 
a good place to be able to create that kind of um, natural environment for people to be um, nourished by, but also a cultural environment that's very nourishing. So um, the year before last, before COVID um, came <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, put the wrecking ball through a lot of uh, ideas and, and intentions, um, was to take a group of social workers to Bali. So um, on retreat to a, uh, a Balinese family-run resort that I've been to many, many times and built up a lot of relationships in that particular village and community. So the idea was for us to go to that place, uh, be immersed in the beauty of Bali and also um, in the culture and the people of Bali and they're, they're incredibly relational culture. So uh, I was hoping to give colleagues that experience, but also to talk it about our work and, you know, again, about the struggles of our work, what inspires us in our work, sharing stories. We might sort of do that in a, using that narrative therapy outside of witnessing sort of um, structure for the conversation. So, but of course that didn't happen. I mean, the scaffold is all there for it to happen. Um, and, you know, the ideas for how we are going to be together. So I've just transferred it into um, a local context. So um, I'm going to take a group of social workers to the beautiful Snowy Valley in at the end of October. Um, and Look, there's a whole story about how that came about, why that particular place. But the reason why I'm really inspired about the Snowy Valley region, it's it's beautiful Wiradjuri country, but of course it was devastated by uh, bushfires um, early early 2020, you know, late 2019, early 2020. So it's it's it. The community and the land is in a is in a process of regeneration. So um, when I visited there a couple of times this year, um, that is really striking. Uh, what you can see, but also um, a very dear friend of mine and colleague is working doing the mental health recovery work down there, um, and so she's put me in in touch with. Um, people that are doing that work and also the Aboriginal community that um, are, are part of that, that process as well. So, um, yeah, so we're going to go into that country, experience that country and also have these regenerating, um, inspiring community-building conversations. That's that's what, what I'm doing in October. <laughs> it sounds actually like there's a real nourishing aspect to this coming together as a community, um, given that you've got all these people engaged in kind of disparate disparate sorts of work um, and immersed in their own organisational context that is, you know, bringing up so much stress and not just everyday stress but ethical stress and, um, you know, existential stress, I would imagine. And so yeah. it actually sounds like coming together to talk about that is nourishing in and of itself. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, that's uh, that's what I know <laughs> yeah. from my own experience. But that, and that's what people tell me how how meaningful, how nourishing it is, how inspiring it is, how hopeful it is to um, you know bring our stories together. Um, yes. Because we don't want to just dwell in the problem saturated accounts of our lives. We don't want to stay there. It's not to say that we want them to disappear or we're about any kind of problem solving. Right? That's not anything to do with what we're about, yeah. you know. It's about, it, you know, making more of those 
responses to adversity, responses to systemic challenges, making them more visible, more put the spotlight on them, um, you know, and honour each other and, and our stories um, where we're part of those recovery, regeneration processes, but also, um, you know, doing the work in the way that we would prefer to be doing it ethically, you know, just with our day-to-day work and the things that we can be doing, you know, just to inspire each other around that. Yeah, there's a sense of autonomy that can come out of that when you're working in an organisation where you feel so put upon all the time and restricted to be able to sit in a space where you can actually feel like you own your practice and your way of being as a social worker, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, honour your way, your own way, you know. Um, you know, I always talk to people about, well, you know, um, I, 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 people will say to me in supervision, you know, like, oh, I really need to do more work on theory to practice and I really want to know more about this model and this approach and how I'm applying it and I'm going, well, how helpful is that tool belt me- metaphor going for you, you know, <laughs> like around theory. I, I I don't know that metaphor works for me, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the metaphor I find around, you know, the relationship between theory and practice is more like a multifocal lens, you know, that you develop over time with your practice. And, you know, that's anyway, I'm more drawn to a different metaphor. But I'd say, look, really, aren't you about developing your model? You know, yes. the insert name here, model. <laughs> yes. And just become more aware of you know, what ideas and uh, are um, exciting for you, are interesting to you, passionate about, um, and, you know, being able to reflect on your own experience of, of practising in those ways, you know, just being more conscious of that. Yes, that's absolutely, I think, the message uh, for all social workers, right, is in am- amongst the chaos of the organisation, come back to what's your professional practice framework. Where are you coming from in your everyday yeah. yeah. And who else can you be maybe um, seeking alliances with, you know, um, seeking that solidarity with yeah. uh, people that you kind of go, oh, wow, there's a quite a bit of common ground here. Uh, and, you know, there might be some st- pretty simple steps you can take to make that more visible and real, you know, like people, um, you know, stepping into co-work initiatives, you know. Yes. Um, but But often it's difficult for workers to leave space for creativity and those kind of solidarity initiatives in the face of busyness, in the face of KPIs, in the face of, um, you know, I I have to get my data, you know, I have to enter my data, I have to get my my progress notes done, my case notes done, you know, uh, all the pressures coming from above, you know, that's one of the things is that people have to fight for that creativity space and that solidarity space. So, um, you know, and I think good supervision, a just supervision will, you know, help encourage that, will support that. Um, even if the supervision conversation <laughs> is uh, the only space where that happens, it's, it's, it's a precious space then. It's, 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 you know, something people can build on, I guess. Yeah. Deanne, I really want to thank you for this conversation. Um, it has been enlightening and, um, and I wish you well with the groups going forward and the retreat coming up. Uh, and um, yes, from Social Work Stories, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. 
Thanks, Mim. It's been great. Thank you. So here we are back. Can I ask you what that was like for you to be speaking with Deanne? What were your highlights? So interesting, Liz, because actually uh, probably a few days before we recorded that conversation, uh, Deanne's been teaching with me in a subject for our master's students called Critically Reflective Social Work Practice. And so we did a module in that subject on the theory around supervision and the supervisory dialogue. So how does that actually, how does reflective practice look in a supervision session? And so Deanne and I recorded a role play uh, where I got to be the client and, no, the social worker, the experienced social worker, and she was giving me a supervision session. So I actually got to experience being supervised by Deanne. Of course, I was making up the case. and But I have to tell you, it was actually like, I felt so incredibly heard by her. It was so, and it was a role play. So I was acting the whole time. But, and what was really interesting was later on when we used it in teaching and Deanne and I led a conversation with the students about it together. And the students' comment was how vulnerable I was in the space. And I thought, that's so interesting because that's not from me. That's not my amazing acting skills, Liz. That was actually me responding to Deanne and the way she was really being present and hearing me, right? Um, So actually then recording this conversation with her, I was reflecting on that as well. And I was thinking at the time, I didn't understand the theoretical framework she was coming from. I was just feeding off her, her skills and her response. But now having heard the theoretical frame and understanding what it is she's trying to emphasize and pull out and this grounding in the story that I'm telling, I totally get why I was so uh, transfixed by her in supervision and why she allowed me so easily to be so vulnerable in that space. I want to have a session with her. I think everybody wants to have a session with her. It was absolutely affirming, like incredible. So let's talk about those, the theories in her practice. So she talked about the narrative therapy approach that she uses, and I want to come back to that one. But but the thing that you highlighted and that's also had me feeling very curious about was the centering the social justice in the supervision and the conversation and I'm imagining the relationship. C- can you talk a little bit more about what, whether you felt that in, in your session with her? Or? Yeah, so what's so interesting about Deanne's approach is that when she's, you know, in narrative therapy, how you're grounded in the many stories that are being told in the space, right? The difference for Deanne is that while she's doing that, she's also actively listening out for the social justice activity or potential that sits in the space, right? So like she described listening out for acts of resistance or for acts of disruption, right? And those are those moments of emancipatory release, right? And I think Jan Fuchs speaks about emancipatory release. And I, it's those moments of liberation or freedom in our practice when we're being reflective on um, what's, gone, what's gone before, what's co- to come, 
and we're actually able to see a pathway. And when we're so immersed in our own narrative, in our own story, we can't always see that potential. Mm. And that's what she's listening out for and that's, the, to me, what I got from the social justice angle and element of what she's speaking to. And I imagine that that must be such a, um, a masterful skill to enable the person to feel heard in their problem-soakedness, so to speak, yeah. and then to be looking for the exceptions within that but in a way that they feel heard because you can't rush to that point. You can't kind of rush to, well, let's just focus on the strengths or the, the positive. Oh, but doesn't either. everyone do that, Liz? People jump in and say, oh, in supervision we're really strengths-based here, right? So that's jumping to the solution yes, as opposed to listening through the process, right? And allowing that potential pathway. And I would never use the word solution. I would use potential pathway as a way out. What about her expression of thickening that? Yeah. Yeah, getting this. What a, what a visceral kind of image, right? It was so visceral. And I think that's why it stuck with me. The other element that I really valued about what she was saying was the imp- how she's finding that if we take this, if she takes this into the group setting, that the other layer that's added to this is the the witnessing and the honouring of other social workers to that social worker's story and then the joining that they can that that, that is um, made in the course of being able to relate to that issue but but really valuing how that person's resisted in the face of an organisation that might be incredibly difficult to work in or with clients that are... Which is know, so important, right? Because... Yeah. Often what happens is, particularly in outsourced external supervision, is the supervision is happening in a very isolated space. So nobody ever sees that supervisory dialogue. It is a private space between you and the supervisor. If it's not, if it's external, it's not even if it's happening at your workplace, right? It's happening somewhere else. So no one's even aware that it's occurring apart from you and the supervisor. So actually being able to kind of have a, have a light on that or have it's almost like seeing a secret communication right because we never get to see that Mm. amazing and and I want to pick up on that one toward the end when we talk about how do we grow as supervisors but Mim the other thing that I was contemplating about the social justice issue is around that moral injury or that spiritual that that spiritual pain that Deanne refers to and I guess for me I I also need to I guess acknowledge that there are times when you have to actually name that an organization for instance might be causing moral harm to to that social worker that that it's one thing to actually focus on the, the, the things that a, a social worker is doing in the face of that. Mm. But one of the things that you and I both heard very clearly from social workers that we work with and we've researched is they also need to hear that at some point, no matter what you do, the organisation has to step into and take responsibility for the way in which that service is being run or the way in which they're not being supported in their work. And I'm curious about how Deanne keeps like acknowledges that and also if she's concerned about a social worker 
and in, a, say, for instance, an organisation that isn't as supportive as what it could be, what happens then? Yeah, and that's and it feels like an extension of the social justice framework, yes. right? Is actually to have an advocacy arm to the supervision because it can't all just be about empowering the person that you're supervising when they're in a toxic environment, right? Yes. Which we know that. We know the reality is there are so many toxic workplaces where social workers work, you know, really difficult personal dynamics and there comes a point where it doesn't matter how good, how much um, support and help helping that you're doing for the client group of that organization if you are not working in an environment that actually nourishes and feeds you then actually there's a limit to how, how productive you can be right because your well-being starts to suffer so that has to be an angle actually that comes out of that framework as well and you and I are really curious about how the workers' well-being is being incorporated into supervision. Yeah, um, and because honestly, between us, Liz, I just don't think that for most social workers that happens. Mm. Like, and that's what worries me about the cl- behind closed doors notion of supervision is that actually I think a lot of social workers are going into supervision and they're just talking about their caseloads um, and maybe they're doing some case analysis great maybe they're talking about their leave entitlements maybe they're talking about somebody's Christmas party or something that happened somewhere but I don't think that what they're doing is really in-depth talking about their well-being talking about their ethics their values and how they're actually relating to the work every day on any sort of spiritual or intellectual or existential level Mm. I really think that's the piece that's often missing Whereas from what you've just said, that was not your experience that you had with Deanne. In oh. fact, it was very, it was very nourishing. Absolutely, mm. and that was performative, mm-hmm. right? So amazing. Imagine yes. if I was really talking about yes. a case that actually impacted me. <laughs> so this this actually leads me into how do we grow and strengthen our social work supervisors when, as you say, and I agree with it. So much of it is done in private and we replicate often what we have done to us. Yeah. I mean, how many social work supervisors out there have really actually been trained in supervision? Because no, no. I mean, really, most of them are thrown into these roles because they got the promotion. They're acting in higher roles. And now suddenly part of that job is also supervising staff. Right. And and look, we're we're coming from the Australian perspective, of course. You know, I, I would really welcome um, people from overseas telling us about whether their experience is different. I have heard in South Africa that part of the undergraduate course is very much focused on supervision and supervising. But um, one of the things that we're doing where I work is that we're setting up communities of practice for our social work supervisors where they can have the space to reflect critically on the supervisory practice. As they would in their clinical practice, it's very much a parallel experience, but it's actually sharing with others how they're actually supervising, what are some of the strategies, what are some of the... What are some of the dynamics that they're needing to kind of reflect on um, in a supportive and and confidential group? Um, and so this next week we're, we're meeting and we're wanting to look at how to be more creative in the supervisory space. 
I love that idea, Liz, that you're bringing together a supervisory community of practice, right? Like I think there's actually a lot to be said as a self-care strategy and not in a um, kind of, you know, notional self-care way, in a real self-care way about job um, satisfaction and job longevity uh, to be said for communities of practice that actually engage us in the work every day and make us feel less isolated, less, um, and also less, oh, I know this is, it's a bit hard to say, but like less in our bodies, because I think in social work, we spend so much time doing the doing mm. and that's vital. Of course it's vital, but we've got to somehow connect up that mind, that heart, that body so that actually we're taking care of all those elements. Because when Deanne speaks to we need to ground every supervision session in values and ethics, what I'm hearing is that that goes beyond the doing. Yes. Right? We're really talking about the heart of reflective practice now. And we're also kind of finishing up where Deanne finished up in relation to creating communities of practice and even running a retreat. Well, what's so exciting, Liz, is that you and I are going to one of Deanne's retreats. So listeners, we will be able to feed back to you at a later date how it was. And, you know, like I'd like to say that it's going to be incredibly deep and it will. But I have signed up for the wine tasting. I have. <laughs> I love that you said you preambled that I, with it's going to be incredibly I, I mean, deep. <laughs> one of my pleasures in life is having a glass of wine with another social worker. Yes. <laughs> and that it'll be in the snowy mountains. Oh, and, it'll know. be so nice. It'll be great. So listeners, watch. wait for that because that's going to be, um, You might. we might just might have a whole episode devoted to debriefing that retreat. Yeah, we could just put the little microphone in our rooms oh, at, yes, night, at night and record our reflections <laughs> on our beautiful yes. day. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Look, I just think um, this is such a rich space for people to really spend some time in, thinking, really thinking properly through what is your supervision like? right what is it how does it feed you or nourish you in your everyday work but then how does it also feed and nourish you in all those other elements as well does it tether you to your social work values and ethics does it provide a space for critical thinking for reflexivity um, for really thinking through your acts of resistance right your acts of disruption I think um, that's really the gift Deanne's given us I think in this recording I in this episode so. and that if it's not doing any of those things it's time to have the conversation with the supervisor shake it up shake it up baby yeah shake it up or maybe shake it out it might be time for a different a different yeah. go and find yourself supervisor. your own Deanne yeah, yeah. <laughs> well on that note I'm thinking we might end it there this is such a good conversation Liz we could do this for hours talk about supervision um I really want to thank Deanne for uh talking with me and having that experience and allowing us to hear, have some insights into her world. So great. Yeah, thanks, Deanne. And um, listeners, we hope you're all doing okay out there. Can't believe COVID is still raging on. Uh, but we are here to support you all in your practice and we are thinking of you all as you carry on. Um, send us a comment through on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Instagram, Twitter, let us know how you're all going. And um, and if you've got a story out there that you're thinking that you'd like to share, please get in touch. 
let us know. We would really like to hear how everyone's traveling. It was really great through COVID getting some different stories uh, from different parts of the world and hearing what's actually happening around the world. So, um, so send it in. From a fully vaccinated social worker, I say farewell, dear listeners. From a soon-to-be vaccinated social worker, I say farewell as well. (laughs) Take care, everyone. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Bye. Bye.